For February 20th, 2012, it's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 190. 18 hours of angel singing and craziness. the Overthinking a Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matt Rather, here with the panel to overthink all manner of things, including Ghost Rider, Spirit of Annihilation, Oblivion, <laughs> Armageddon, Spirit of Armageddon, no, Spirit of, what is it, Pete? Vengeance? Vengeance. Vengeance. They don't even put a two in there. It's just Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance. Now, this is not a good movie to podcast <laughs> about because we, uh, uh, one of the three of us, uh, me, Pete Fenzel, and John Parrish, uh, one of the three of us has seen it. But we still have a majority of podcasters who haven't seen uh, the, the, the uh, movie. So there is a preponderance. In fact, there is a, a majority of ignorance. No, there is a yeah. preponderance. There is a preponderance of ignorance. There, those but, uh, are equivalent. Judging from the grosses this weekend, I feel like that's pretty much going to be the fact of the matter with this movie. Like it's never going to be a movie that a Ghost lot of people. Ghost Rider think. Two: Preponderance of Ignorance. <laughs> so uh, exactly, it's still it's still suitable. Um, it's still suitable material for the podcast. So because it's a uh, uh, spirit of vengeance. Uh, we're going to use our uh, usual uh, question of the week formula panel. Your question. If you could be the spirit of one thing, what would it be? <laughs> Pete Fenzel, you're first look, up. Look, man, this movie, you might think this is just, an, um, first of all, my throat, is, my voice is totally shot. I'm enjoying a, a delicious Thayer's Slippery Elm lozenge to try to cure my throat, so I apologize for my hoarseness. Um, and so as much as I want to be the spirit of Thayer's Slippery Elm lozenges, <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to say this movie... <laughs> This movie has blown my mind. Uh, I, I, I got home from the movie thinking this will be the most difficult podcast I will ever do because I can't talk, but also because of this movie. Uh, so I got to say right now, man, I would be the spirit of Ghost Rider, the spirit of the spirit of vengeance. I would just spirit it up on my side. <laughs> um, just, yeah, just like put that inside of parentheses. That's actually the um, – that's what, the distributive property of, of <laughs> Ghost Rider? Which is that the spirit of Ghost Rider, the spirit of vengeance, is equal to the spirit of Ghost Rider, colon, the spirit of the spirit of vengeance? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's how it works. Uh, maybe I'm the spirit, I'm the, the spirit of, uh, of unnecessary application of elementary school or middle school mathematical terms. How does, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. I was about to say, how does the, like, the higher level of abstraction or the like, increase uh, in incorporeality, uh, how does that manifest if you are the spirit of the spirit of something? Oh, well, I mean, you could talk about it in terms of zeitgeist, right? Like, you could talk about it in terms of, like, what is the existence of this particular work of art in the common subjective experience of the people who are watching it and the people who are talking to the people who are watching it, mm-hmm. right? So, like, the, the spirit of Beethoven is not just the, like, da-da-da-da, specifically. It's, like, all the stuff that is in the, the sort of popular consciousness around that idea, right? So, um that kind of so the spirit of Ghost Rider, the spirit of the spirit of vengeance, would would be this like sort of combination of like eighteen different genres that are all packed in this movie that all like stick in this sort of self contempting way in the middle of of the uh, of the popular discourse. I think that's and also like there would be sort of like an ideal and and practical Nicolas Cage. Um, that are somewhat similar to what he did in adaptation, except uh, like eight times as crazy and riding all sorts of ridiculous flaming vehicles. So cool. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. John Parrish. 
What up? What up? What up? So I'm I'm sitting here by the by the overthinking it podcasting machine, uh, the you know the the remote Cambridge version, enjoying you know some enjoying some leftover alcohol from dinner. And I'm I'm thinking about how you know how how much easier it is for me to overthink and relax and just enjoy myself socially with with some sort of cocktail in hand. So I am I am definitely going to become the going to become Ghost Rider, the spirit of spirits for the <laughs> for the remainder of this podcast. I I embody spirits. And the, the spirit of spirits and the good spirits that are engendered by them. So that, that's also pretty recursive if you think about it because it's it's looping back in on its – I don't know. I'm pouring another drink. <laughs> so wait. So is the idea here that we're playing a drinking game where every time someone mentions a Nicolas Cage movie, you drink leisurely through the rest of the night? <laughs> <laughs> no. The, 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 game, the game is every time someone mentions a Nicolas Cage movie, I take one very intense drink and then several leisurely sips for the next eight to ten minutes. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. It's good that we have a nice... There aren't a lot of drinking games that have sort of a manageable pace to them. That kind of, like, work practically in terms of the way that people actually enjoy drinking. Yeah. So, yeah or it, I'm, it, I guess the distribution of drinks should be random, because it, it should just be a, a bunch of, like, leisurely sips that, you know, just sort of blend into the background, and it's tough to really get a hold on. But then you, like, you know, roll snake eyes or something, and you have to take, like, six shots in rapid succession while screaming and bugging your eyes out. That would be the appropriate, <laughs> that would be the appropriate Nicolas Cage drinking game. I don't think anything else would really come close. This is like uh, ancient Greek worship of Athena, where there's like all these different aspects of the spirit of spirits. There's like the spirit of spirits, the merciful, like the spirit of spirits, the indulgent, the spirit of spirits, the leisurely, like all these different ways that you can be drinking while talking about ghost writing. And of course, after you indulge enough, there's the spirit of spirits, the vengeful, the next morning, because they, <laughs> they, have, they wreck their vengeance on you. Uh, excellent. Hey, John, I have a question about something that you said. You said it was leftover alcohol. And, I, and I'd like to just advance, you know, for debate. I'm not saying I necessarily hold uh, to this uh, proposition, but I, I want to advance a proposition for debate. And it is this. Resolved. Uh, alcohol are, is never leftover. It's just not consumed yet. What do you think? <laughs> That's that's fair. I, I I perhaps smuggled it in the wrong context. I meant that I you know I poured myself a drink with dinner. I didn't finish it all with dinner. Oh, I see. Now I'm oh, so now it's I'm the done eating. Drink. It's the actual the booze in your glass yes. was left over. Okay, I see it's what it. you were getting at. So I'm 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 done I'm done eating. I'm not done drinking. I'm never <laughs> really done drinking, man. <laughs> He's the spirit of spirits. That's what he does. Ghost Rider, the spirit of spirits. I am the spirit of spirits future. Who are um, uh, my turn, I guess. I, I was going to steal a joke from Dimitri Martin and say that I was going to be this, the, the ghost of future perfect. Uh, <laughs> and you're not talking about the Peter, was it the uh, Peter David Incredible Hulk story arc? You're talking about something entirely different. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good, in uh, Dimitri Martin's book, This is a Book. Uh, there's a very good kind of gag story, short story about Ebenezer Scrooge being awakened, uh, being awakened, you know, on Christmas Eve by the ghost of Future Perfect, uh, who says, "I am going to show you what Christmas will have been like after certain other future <laughs> events have transpired." <laughs> and so that's, that's awesome. Yeah, it, it's a great joke. I uh, I won't I won't. Uh, I won't use that one, though. Um, I won't steal a joke, even, even from a guy like Dimitri Martin, a, a master 
a master whose jokes, uh, you know, I would be lucky to steal. But uh, something that, that John said about drinking games and rolling snake eyes uh, made me um, realize I, I want to commemorate, I want to use this opportunity to commemorate um, uh, another Nicolas Cage movie from 1998, directed by Brian De Palma. And so I, <laughs> I hereby declare myself the spirit of snake eyes. Uh, <laughs> Right? Because uh, you can believe everything ex- except your eyes, and I guess I guess because I have an uninterrupted thirty-minute uninterrupted take uh, at the beginning of me um, that uh, what I just go on rambling through. <laughs> well, I'd love to watch Face Off: The Spirit of Vengeance or something like that, or The, the Spirit of Face Off. Face Off: The Spirit of Face Off. But that's cool. Did you like Snake Eyes? Is that a good movie? No, it's not a good movie, and it's it's a very it's a very like uh, it's a very strange movie because there is a uh, I think in in the original script or in in the script that was uh, shot there was a tidal wave that hits Atlantic City and like drowns everyone and they cut the tidal wave out for for whatever reason uh, out of the movie that was released but in Nicolas Cage's climactic final speech you know standing on the boardwalk he refers to and there I was underwater fighting for breath, you know what I mean? And, and refers to the experience of, of being nearly drowned in a t- tidal wave in a movie where no tidal wave has, in fact, hit Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's very bizarre. I, it's mostly a curiosity for that, you know. I, I suppose it's been done better in, like, Russian arc. Or there are, I mean, there are other one-take movies that are probably better. But seeing, well, a, Holly- seeing a Hollywood movie with a you know, half-hour half hour shot in it is pretty interesting, I guess. Well, that, that's, a, that's a Brian De Palma, uh, not, not a shtick of his, but it's something he's tried before. A like trademark, Car- a trademark thing? Trademark, thank you. Yeah, like yeah. Car- Carlito's Way, for instance. There's a, there's a climactic uh, shootout with uh, Al Pacino as Carlito, uh, you know, trying to flee some mobsters who are after him in Grand Central Station. In uh, in New York, and that's done in in primarily one take. It's not it's not quite thirty minutes long, but it's a pretty long take. And and obviously, you know, it didn't have to be shot that way, but it was, I, I guess, sort of De, uh, De Palma trying something out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, I would like to jump on a a, a misstep you made earlier, and I, oh, I know you tried to blow past it. But, serves me right. But I but I will say Ebenezer Cruz. <laughs> sounds like a sounds like a really entertaining house DJ. Did like I, I would. Did I actually say that? I thought I said Ebenezer Scrooge, but Ebenezer. You did. You did. You, did. Yeah, you, you corrected. corrected you corrected. Yeah. You corrected yourself. But I want you to stick with that original one. I want to see. I want to see Ebenezer Cruz mixing it up at Rise in downtown Boston with you know Tiesto and Max Graham and you know the other the other house electro trance you know all stars. Well, that, I mean, it would be pretty funny, right? This Christmas, Danny Trejo is. Ebenezer Cruz. <laughs> awesome. That'd be great. That's, I would love to see that movie. Yeah, that's a movie that we should make. <laughs> I'll um, call Danny. I'll get him on the horn. We'll make that happen. Uh, hey, so, okay. Uh, Pete, I have a question for you about yeah, that, sure. that is about linguistics. Um, is, is it linguistics or philology? <laughs> You're going to have to tell me. Uh, okay. I... Uh, is it the spirit of vengeance in, in the sense that, like, Ghost Rider is kind of the ghost of vengeance? Like, spirit in the sense of... Is it uh, a spirit in the sense that Casper is a spirit? Or is it spirit in the sense that, like, Zeitgeist is a spirit of the times? Uh, this is a semantic question, probably more than a linguistic question, I suppose. I suppose. Yeah. Um, so it is both, as is always the answer to these questions. Um, so so and this really hits to the heart of what this movie 
is a what makes this movie complicated. Okay, I'm, a, I'm glad we've got to the heart of what makes this movie complicated. <laughs> right it's a tremendously that. complicated movie. It's made by the Crank guys. It includes a great deal of uh, uh, just semantic density, just tons and tons of stuff that in other movies would be you would be able to excuse as sort of being either atmospheric or a detail for the sake of detail or kind of part of a an elegant composition. There's just all this stuff that sort of stands down and comments on itself. So there's a lot that's going on. But at the heart of this is the idea that you have a superhero movie where your superhero is uh, unstoppable. You know, Ghost Rider in this movie yeah. is never really in any danger when he is Ghost Rider. Uh, and the, the drama of his character is that he is crazy. He is, like, totally freaking insane. And thus, like, the things that he chooses to do at different times are only semi-voluntary. And so you have this, like, it's almost like a Buchnerian character, right, who is, like, part of this bizarre, like, you know, heaven, like, hell, uh, like, machinery that is sort of driving him into this mad place. So... So to answer your question, the spirit of vengeance is revealed in the... Now, I'm not familiar with the comic book, so that this is all without any knowledge of the comic book, really. So I, I apologize to anybody for whom this is obvious. But the, the deal with Ghost Rider is that he is a stunt motorcyclist who has made a deal with the devil such that his body is intermittently possessed by a demon that seeks vengeance on people, uh, bad people. Now, what is revealed in the movie is that this demon that is inside of Nicolas Cage is an angel of justice that has been perverted and corrupted through, like, nameless eons of torture and hell. So to be this, like, mad spirit of vengeance, right? So the spirit of vengeance lives within Nicolas Cage and is sort of in league with the devil, but is also so crazy and unpredictable that the devil doesn't entirely control it. Plus, Nicolas Cage has a certain amount of mediating power over how this demon slash angel like interacts with the world, right? So in that sense, Ghost Rider, the spirit of vengeance is like the the character of the spirit of vengeance being within Ghost Rider is like the main point of this character. In another sense, spirit of vengeance. <laughs> spirit of vengeance. Oh, that was all. That was all Roman numeral one. Yeah, that's all Roman numeral one. So in Roman numeral two, the spirit of vengeance is sort of uh, a allegorical statement about what the what the movie is about. Um, because it isn't really a kind of hero's journey in any kind of discernible way, um, and it, it's uh, it's sort of it's very highly symbolic, and and the scenes that are happening are very dominated by by symbolic gesture, right? So like a person running down a, a hill jumps in a puddle, and the camera focuses on the puddle, and there's like a sense that it means something, uh, and and, um, and like it's it, I know that it's tough to infer intentionality from these sorts of things, but there's definitely sort of a meta cinematic intent like communication of an impression of a mirror of intentionality so it's like all the way down the rabbit hole but basically like what we're we're saying is that that um this is a movie that is about the idea of vengeance it is about the idea of of having a spirit what is the relationship between a spirit and a person uh like what does having a spirit do to people there's different people in the movie who are empowered by different infernal and celestial spirits. Uh, and, and these spirits stand in as metaphors for psychological conditions, for, for choices, for attitudes. Uh, and so Ghost Rider's Spirit of Vengeance, while also referring to a specific character, refers to, like, the phenomenon of vengeance as it is explicated in the sequel to Ghost Rider. Uh, and in a third sense, uh, it, is a, it is a repudiation of the first Ghost Rider movie. Not calling it Ghost Rider 2, uh, trying to come up with some sort of fresh uh, idea of the origin of Ghost Rider, I think. Not in terms of a plot origin, but a story origin. Like, what does he mean? What does he represent? Um, 
that is kind of independent of his kind of uh, like Faustian bargain. You know what I mean? Like, like, like. I think the the first Ghost Rider movie was much more straight up of a Faustian bargain kind of situation and kind of a redemption story. In this, we're all we're already so far. We're like Faust Part Two at this point. We're like Goethe's Faust Part Two. We're like it's just like eighteen hours of angels singing and craziness. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that's that's the answer. Does that answer your question? That it's like it is both a, a, def, a, a reference to a specific spirit that is like a non corporeal being that influences the world through a corporeal vessel, and it is a metaphorical statement about the kind of allegorical and symbolic and, and kind of virtue points of the movie. Okay, so it's a, it's a ghost in the sense of, like, demonic... So in the first one, it's a, uh, it's a ghost in the sense of demonic possession or something like that. Yes. Not a, not a ghost in the, in the uh, Ghostbusters or the Casper the Friendly sense. No, no, no. No, it is not a dead person. It is a it is a like a primordial angel, like a very a very Miltonic kind of primordial angel that is like cast that is like torn down into hell, kind of semi. They don't really explain why, but he, he ends up in hell. He's sent to the earth to defend the earth, and these are told in like bizarre animated narrative flashbacks that that are done in almost like a Terry Terry Gilliam influenced kind of like structure. Even though the style is is not really cardboard cutouts, it's like weird suggestive album cover style art, but like Nicolas Cage will just go on a tangent and narrate like long stretches of celestial history during the course of this movie um, and his own history. It's just like there's just moments of almost prologue and argument that are thrown into the different parts of the movie. Because in, in the kind of phantasmagoric cosmology, uh, there are like uh, of this, you know, uh, uh, diegetic world, there are um, what there are real demons, right? There is a devil, That's- right? And stuff like that. There is a devil who is on Earth. On Earth, his name is Rourke, um, and, and, and he is actually like the devil. And he, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, one of the big points of the movie is that these spirits uh, of, and devils and angels and stuff try to act on the world, but because they have to act through people, this kind of mediates and limits their powers, right? And, and not in the sense of like not quite like Vigo the Carpathian like it, it does it, you watch the actors kind of consume themselves and make up effects happen and kind of acting techniques are used and character techniques are used as you like see the actions of the spirits working through them kind of like drive them either towards madness or self-destruction or or like any sort of other kinds of 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 kind of identity negative states so it's uh, it's, it's like driving bumper cars or something like that in in the in the sense that yeah. like the bumper car is an instrument that kind of mediates your intentionality right yeah and and uh conveys your intentionality in an imperfect way uh into the medium of the bumper car arena so yes. in, uh, yep so in this analogy the people are the bumper cars and the uh the spirits are us the bumper car drivers uh yeah, yeah, yeah. The spirit. Yeah. It would be like if Dale. The equivalent would be like Dale Earnhardt at a bumper car race. Got like it. Dale Earnhardt wants to be driving a race car and smashing into the wall at like 200 miles an hour. You know, peace be upon him. I apologize too soon. But uh, but he in, in a bumper car, he's driving just as slow as everybody else and is somewhat frustrated. He might be more aggressive and a more effective bumper car driver. But uh, I mean, and of course, there's all the supernatural powers that do don't quite translate in the metaphor. But that's the idea. That's the idea. I understand. Yeah. So, Absolutely. so it sounds it sounds like it sounds like Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance uh, depicts a, a much more Manichaean worldview than you know traditional Christianity would, despite borrowing elements of you know angels and of the devil, like the the devil, like the tempter, the devil. So, I yeah. mean, you, he's referred you, to as the seducer in the movie, as the seducer. Yes. Okay. 
So yep. would you say would you say that good and evil exist on on an equal playing field here? Because you 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 do get some of these movies, like some of these either supernatural, either suspense movies or action movies, uh, where you know the devil is sort of like operating, sort of like a guerrilla partisan or like a terrorist in the real world, where you know God, where the the Judeo Christian God is still all powerful, so the devil kind of has to act sneakily, and then yeah. you get somewhere where there's sort of an outright war between God and the devil, where they're pl- where they're portrayed as being on like equal playing fields, and they all have armies behind them, and it's a straight up like you know. Eastern Front, Germany versus Russia at the foot of Stalingrad type battle. Yeah. So which which of those would you say it, it falls into? In, in it, this is, it is the first one, but it is very deliberately the inversion of the first one. So the devil is a white man in a business suit. And and there's a point near the end of the movie where there's going to be like a giant. Oh, by the way, there's going to be spoilers. Like we're not going to withhold the ending of Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance from you. Uh, it, you won't lose that much. <laughs> um, by the way, the last line of the movie is, um, "Did we win?" Uh, I'm going to say yes. Hell yes. <laughs> and so it's like an like the events at the end of the movie are, are, are ambiguous and confusing enough that the characters themselves don't know whether they actually won at the end. But anyway, um, there's a big ritual at the end where like the devil is going to do something. He's going to have an antichrist situation. He's going to take over the world. And all these limos and SUVs are pulling up. And all of these business leaders from around the world and political leaders are showing up to participate in the ritual. And uh, the good people, the good guys, are represented by kind of like you know doughy Nicolas Cage, who's this like motorcycle drifter guy. But more importantly, Idris Elba, who plays a French priest, who is kind of like a warrior priest from a secret order, right? And he is a he's like a charming alcoholic. Well, he loves wine, and he, he and he's uh, he's like French, he's like African French or or something like that. And he, he has those catacombs with wine in them, and also by a gypsy family, a Roma Roma family. Um, and the, the Roma family is, includes a woman who, uh, when she was dying, you know, made a deal with the devil to extend her life in exchange for conceiving the Antichrist. Right. So you have a situation where you have uh, a black guy who's like a, a, a poor priest and who travels sort of – and, and a motorcyclist and a bunch of gypsies who are kind of like traveling around and they're being pursued by like a much more well-equipped, you know, like sort of well-appointed um, – you know, societal force. Now, this for this force. There's a point in which the bad one of the bad guys meets an arms dealer and purchases very specifically a whole bunch of American military weapons that he's going to use against Ghost Rider. And they explain <laughs> how these weapons work. It's like this is a bunker buster. This is what happens when you set off a bunker buster. There's a montage where when they show the the madness that the angel has gone through, they show all these historical events. It's sort of like when Cartman goes crazy when you see inside Cartman's mind. That South Park episode, and it's like all these horrible atrocities, and it's like a mouse eating another mouse's brains. You see like a flash through of like the Holocaust and like all the horrible things that people have done to each other, and like wars and and a lot of soldiers, right? So the idea is that like the operation of hegemonic society is not necessarily in league with the devil, but the devil like belongs to that group of people, and the quote unquote good people kind of operate on the fringe. Uh, and, and they're 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 not. It's not clear whether they're actually cooperating, and and it's sort of like the prophecy and or spawn in that like the 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 good people are kind of at like there's no like pure white light of goodness that comes down and just like washes everything clean. Um, there's nothing like that. Although there's the equivalent from like the infernal side, and there's a lot of antiheroes. Uh, but you are kind of in the desert for an extent of time where the devil is chasing you, but you don't really have anybody else to turn to other than like yourself or like Eric Stoltz, like in the prophecy, um, who turns out to be inadequate. But that's a whole other matter. 
Does that make sense? That like that this is like on one hand, this is a Spencerian allegory where you have a spirit of vengeance, you have a spirit of decay, you have like a sort of mammon, like like businessman devil figure. It's like an allegory like that where the spirits fight each other and you see what happens. In another sense, it's like a sociological, almost Marxist drama where like these subaltern groups are resisting the attempts of this this like uh, developed, influential, powerful force to propagate itself and, and continue itself. And in another sense, it's a, it's a a superhero movie, right? Where you're taking a character from Marvel comic and you're like relating events that will correspond to this character who's familiar. It's an action movie. It's a crazy Nicolas Cage movie. It's a it's a story about a kid, like saving a kid who's being kidnapped. You know, like there's a whole bunch of different things that are happening. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, I'm, so, I'm 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 talking my I'm talking your ears off about this stuff. No, you're not. Um, I'm just I'm just worried. I, I've been trying to ask very long questions. I've been trying to pad my questions out <laughs> with uh, you know unrelated material. I've been trying to repeat my questions several times uh, in order to give you a break, a, uh, a kind of a kind of rest, a, a sort of respite, if you will. Well, well let me ask you. Let, no, let me, okay, go ahead. Let's go not ahead. make podcast worse in order to. <laughs> well, let me ask. Let me ask you guys a question. Okay, so. This movie has a whole bunch of different facets. Um, a good example of, of one of the ways that the movie kind of subverts itself is there is a scene in a diner or a fast food restaurant where um, the kid, who is the Antichrist that Nicolas Cage is trying to save, and his gypsy mother and Nicolas Cage uh, are, are hanging out, and the kid is looking at other fathers and sons, and his father is, of course, Satan. And he's looking at other fathers and sons as they get along, and Nicolas Cage kind of puts his hand on the kid's head, and the kid gives him a weird look. And he pulls it back, and he's like, oh, there was, a, there was a bee on your face, and I just wanted to get rid of it. And then he proceeds to drink an entire pitcher of water, which he never really comments on. And so there's this, like, very strange scene that's happening where you're seeing all these different things happening. I can, I can, it stands apart from the rest of the movie, and it invites an entire different school of interpretation. So that's an example. Question to you, and you can apply this to any work you can think of. If you're looking at a work that can be interpreted through all of these different modes of interpretation, you know, different, different ideas of interpretation, how do you adjudicate them? Like, how do you figure out what kind of interpretation to imply to a work when that work doesn't fit uh, into, into one either by self-selection or canonization or, like, something in its moment in time or in history or, or a purpose that you're trying to ascribe to it? Like, there's no reason that this movie exists. That's one of the, the only – I mean, it's not making money. Like, it's so, so, like, this movie kind of exists as an object, at least to me, that you could choose any number of ways to look at it. How do you adjudicate those choices when you're trying to look at a very complex piece that deliberately tries to frustrate your attempts to interpret it? <laughs> well, well, it seems. I mean, it's making a little. It's making a little money. Not to not to quibble with the small part <laughs> of your, your argument. No, I know, I know. I mean, it seems like it seems like it's made you know twenty five million dollars over the uh, Friday through Monday four day holiday. At least that's that's what is estimated. I guess. Right, right, right. At this point, but isn't it, wouldn't you think that the right text to to compare compare this to that is to say this text that has all these that is um, oh I heard a great academic uh, BS word for this uh, that is uh, that is a heteroglossic discourse that is to say it contains sort of many different languages uh, and many different sort of um, what uh, linguistic representative modes. Uh, modalities yeah. in it uh, isn't the right text to compare it to actually the the Bible, the Christian Bible, which is you know a, a, a compilation of of different texts 
uh, that are sort of yoked together under this this heading, you know, this one heading of being being the Bible, being uh, the the scripture for a major world religion, but in fact are you know different kinds of stories, different kinds of legal documents, uh, at least one dirty dirty love poem, you know, like a songbook, a uh, you know, and things, uh, and you know, th- and then one like one astonishingly weird dream journal. And then, and then, like oh, yeah. a, a, a compilation of letters, you know, um, all all yoked together in, uh, you know, between two covers. Isn't that a, isn't that the right the right kind of work to compare this to? Um, I would say that. So, the, what, when you're talking like this, what this makes me think of is John Guillory's Poetic Authority, right? The the book on Spencer Milton and literary history, uh-huh. where where they talk about um, the one of the projects of literature being the sort of. Um, Adoption. I'm not going to use the same precise terms because it's been years since I've read it. But the general gist of it is, uh, you're you're trying to supplant or support or sustain or somehow continue or surpass uh, the role of scripture in as as a sort of literary uh, as a literary operation, right? Like you're, you're you make poems up that are aspiring to be like the Bible in the way that they tell people how to live, the way that they say things that are true, the, the relationship between the poetic language of the Bible and the authority that it has is imitated in a lot of other works, right? Am I, am I getting somewhere near the target in terms of what that kind of piece is about? I'm sure I'm missing a lot of the point of it. Um, but the main thing is that I've seen a lot of movies that I feel like follow that model and, and a, a lot better than this one does. And one that way I bring up would be like Terminator 2. Uh-huh. Right, sure. It's like, yeah. like Terminator Two is a movie where the events that are in Terminator Two, by virtue of their form, purport to be important, uh, and they purport to be uh, something that you're supposed to believe in. Almost, like, in fact, I would say that there's at least one person on our website who very much believes in Terminator Two. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but I wish he was here today to laugh about the fact that I'm ribbing him about this. Um, but like <laughs> Terminator, Terminator Two is presenting a mythology. You know, Terminator Two is presenting much more than Terminator One, but even that does it to an extent. Like a, a, a god figure to an extent, right? Like, and a story of people and God and, and rules and laws. And that importance becomes part of why you watch it, and it becomes part of why it should exist. Sure, sure, sure. We believe in one Cameron, director almighty, creator, exactly. of, creator of Sarah and John. I'm the king of the world, right? Like, <laughs> we're talking about Titanic. I'm the king of the world. It's like an, it's, there's an epic aspect to it, but like, there's a poetic authority okay, there. Okay, well, there's, there's another one, and then I, th- I would say a third one is probably Avatar, where, you know what I mean? Which is one that kind of, um, that, that sort of came to mind, which is about a, a, a sort of apocalyptic battle between good and evil that actually, that appears to be the, uh, it appears to be the all powerful God versus, you know, versus Wily Devil battle, but, uh, I don't know, Wily, De- but what, but Pocahontas and John Smith turned the tables or something like that. I don't know. Right, 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 right. And so there's also an aspect of, you know, his- historiography, is that the word I'm looking for that's in there? Um, so in this movie, it just it hates itself so much, and like like it's just like the dead like my my friend Dan saw this movie with me. When the demon talks, he almost exclusively talks in puns and jokes, and not in like a funny way. He's just like like people are openly mocking. Kind of like the, kind of like the uh, kind of like uh, uh, what Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mister Freeze, right? Where it's it's yeah. so it's kind of joyless that, because it's so dense with uh, yeah. you know with that kind of thing. 
Yeah, like they're like, what is it? Uh, what's a good example? Like, there's a scene where they have to go visit a mobster to find out where somebody is, and like he's somebody just has a duffel bag full of prescription medication, and somebody talk, is talking about his balls, right? There's just like a one-off line where the gangster's like, oh, this is, and it's in Russian, and it's like, what are you gonna? This is the thing with my balls, right? And it like it like robs the scene of any sort of um uh, of like of like getting accustomed to the environment where the scene is. It sort of th- takes you out of that, and it's like, okay, this scene is ridiculous. Let's see what happens. So in that sense, and there's a, and there's a lot of moments like that where they just deliberately pull the sense of creating a reality out of the scene with a very absurd joke, like very early on in the scene. Now, that said, I can see, if you were to compare it to the Bible, the parts of the Bible you could compare it to would probably be like, you'd have to start with like very deep Old Testament stuff, like the book of Job. Like that's really, I think, where it starts. And I guess then... You form from there, and you look at the different aspects of it because it's you know there's like a flawed, the fl- the hero it's, it doesn't have the same kind of idea of a, I, anyway. Based on what you've described, and I hate to contradict your interpretation. No, of the by movie, all means, the movie yeah. that only you have seen of us <laughs> and compare it to, to books of the Bible. But ba- based on what you've described, it doesn't it doesn't sound very much like like Job at all. Now I'm. I'm particular in that you know I'm a I'm a highly highly lapsed Catholic, but even even with that in mind, the the two books of the Bible that I that I've always still taken seriously, in fact that I that I still believe contain immense amounts of human wisdom, even regardless of their religious connotations, are the Book of Job and the Book of Ecclesiastes. Yes, like th- those two between the two of them, they're they're like immensely like interesting reading, if for nothing more than their existential values. Yes. And the movie you described does not sound very existentialist. It, oh, it's uh, very existentialist. Oh, totally. Really? Oh, very, oh it, yeah, yeah. It sounds like people's actions have meaning on the universe, and and not that they derive meaning from not that they derive meaning from what they do, but what they do has meaning on the universe as a whole, and that seems contra to existentialism. Like Nicholas K. Or sorry, Ghost Rider. Uh, Johnny Blaze, Ghost Rider, is you know fighting to to stop the Antichrist from being born, and if he succeeds, the Antichrist isn't born and things are better, and if he fails, things get worse for everybody. That that seems contra to what I know of existentialism. Um, I would say okay, so so the plot point that's slightly different is that he's not stopping the Antichrist from being born. He is trying to stop like a ten year old boy who is. Who was born as the human child, the half human child of the devil and a woman, from assuming the mantle of Antichrist? Okay. Uh, so, and that's an important distinction that I didn't make entirely clear. And there's a lot of discussion. There's there's a there's one in particular conversation where Nicolas Cage and the boy talk about the power that they have by being related to these infernal things. And when Nicolas Cage comes out and says, um, you know. The, the power, you know, the power want the power wants to do these things, but like it isn't who we are, right? Like like it just because it is real to us doesn't mean that it defines who we are. You know, we have a freedom with this situation to to define what we want to do, uh, and, and in that sense, because it's the. Um, the relationship between the spirits and the corporeal vessels seems to be one in which, like, the existence of the corporeal vessel precedes its essence as, like, a channeler of these sorts of different spiritual influences. And it does not necessarily seem arbitrary which spiritual influence gets associated with which person or how it gets mediated by that person. Um, so I guess the question is, uh, if you, so you have Nicolas Cage, right? And he's possessed by this mad, crazy angel. 
are we entirely supposed to believe that all of the craziness that we see in Nicolas Cage's character is like independent or it is like dependent upon the craziness of this angel that possesses him? No, he was like this before the angel came along. So there's a, there's a sort of uh, symmetry to that, that like, yes, in the sort of chronology of events, he was this, this spirit that's older than him is flowing into him. But at the same time, he is also sort of actively ascribed to exist in this way and he happens to have encountered this spirit that then moves through him in a, in a kind of confluence um well i that, guess that, i mean I, yeah and again not not to not to contradict your take on it but that doesn't that doesn't strike me as existentialist so much as it strikes me as you know mind body dualist like you know there is there is the spirit or the mind or the ego and there is the body or the, the corporeality and you know the 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 meat of the person and these these two these two forces are at war, and that's I mean there's no one philosophical you know school of thought that that has a monopoly on that because that's that's pretty common throughout you know Western and even Eastern thought for the last I don't know four thousand years plus. But that I, I guess the interesting thing is that it seems like it's an inversion of that. Whereas typically what you have is you know the the mind or the soul is the nobler element and the body is the grosser element, and you know our our job is to Make sure the mind triumphs over the body. Here, it sounds like uh, Nicholas Cage, ha- or sorry, Johnny Blaze, Ghost Rider, has the opposite problem. That you know, his body is you know basically decent, maybe a little shop worn, but still pretty good. And his soul is you know crazy and sets things on fire and blows things up. Yeah. So his yeah. body has to triumph over his soul in this case, which is a which is as as you said earlier, it's an inversion on the classical trope. Yeah, I, I would I would. Um, ask what your opinion uh, is philosophically of uh, philosophies of the will that are um, materialist in their um, metaphysics. So something like Schopenhauer, right, where like the will doesn't exist in a dualist relationship with the corporeal body, right? It's something that it, that exists in the material world, but it's a way of describing the the way that this sort of intention is too loose of a word for it, but these sort of impetuses function through us. Right, like that um that you can have a spirit or a will that I mean, even if it's something that is made up of a, as an aggregate of, you know, functional cognitive capability, right, or even if it's something uh, else that entirely um it doesn't have to necessarily like like so I'm saying what I'm saying, what I'm trying I'm trying to make the leap in understanding this movie, which is a it's a crazy movie. One of the leaps that I'm trying to make is that the spiritual phenomena seem analogous to psychological phenomena or connected to psychological phenomena and then also to physical phenomena. Right. So there's like a there's a character who gets at one point in the movie empowered with this like he becomes this sort of ghoul of decay. The devil transforms him into this thing, this person that whenever he touches anything, it, it decays. Now this is somewhat similar to what he was like before um and and so he does this thing right um it has a sort of scientific basis like he rusts metal he rots fruit he crushes skulls like everything turns to dust there's something that's very materialistic about it right it's like a it's almost like he has some sort of infection right um but at the same time it's also symbolic of an idea of decay that is discursive and linguistic but also an idea of decay that is um is almost in a sort of raw intention Right, like like something that I don't necessarily mean. No, if it's a it's if it's a soul that exists or a spirit exists independently of the body or something that like 
acts behind the body. I don't know. I've never really been able to really capture. You know, those philosophical schools I'm talking about, like this idea of the will and things I, like that. I don't know. I mean, you, you mentioned Schopenhauer. Is this yeah. are you hinting at like some some inversion of the insatiable will to life? Like you know, Schopenhauer you know describes all all people as having that, and I guess this this ruin ghost is an inversion of that. Like he has this insatiable you know consumptive power, or or I, I guess I'm. What? I was thinking. I was just thinking that like these people are possessed of these insatiable drives, and they strive in their lives to try to establish some sort of either control or peace or happiness in relation to these lives. And that most of moral construction and aesthetics and the other things that they live with are are attempts to try to come to terms with or otherwise like persist in the face of their of their their the will to life, but as a motorcycle fiery dude rather than as somebody who wants to go have sex. I guess that would be what I would be talking about. Like one in which like the will is hostile to what we would think of as a human, but necessary. Um, okay. Uh, I yeah, mean, yeah. I, I personally don't buy into the, the, the Schopenhauer, Schopenhauerian, Schopenhauerian. I don't know what the appropriate adjective is. I don't, <laughs> I don't necessarily buy into, to Schopenhauer's as well. I don't buy into Schopenhauer's notion of, of the will and, and the human will as, you know, empirically accurate, but I mean, that's, that's a whole other debate. Like, you know, whether it's empirical or not, is, is it useful philosophically? So, I mean, if that, if that's a useful lens through which to interpret this, then, then yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's something to be said for that. I mean, I guess the other, the other alternative we could take is the sort of, I guess, uh, I guess, I guess Wagnerian sense in which, in which these, these guys are, are characters who, embody you know aspects of of fate like some some fated battle between between good and evil that's going to remake the world and their their identities as persons are are secondary to to this battle to the importance of this battle like it doesn't really matter what you know sigmund really wants or it doesn't really matter what the dwarves really want they just need to go through these these steps in order to bring about the battle that's going to end the world and I, that, you know, yeah yeah and and here obviously we we have some of that as well because it doesn't it doesn't really matter what Johnny Blaze wants he just needs to show up in time to either stop or fail to stop the antichrist from becoming antichristly yeah 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 i think that that's, that actually seems like it hits the nail pretty hard in the head one aesthetic aspect of the movie that reinforces one of the many different interpretive lenses that we can see it through. And I was noticing this through a lot of the movie. This is characteristic of the Crank movies, too, to which the movie is very closely related. The actor and the character are often not central to the purpose of a scene, the sort of story behind the plot of a scene, the focus of the camera, things of that nature. Um, So, for example, in a shot where Johnny Blaze gets thrown into a car, Right, like he gets, gets chucked into a car, car gets destroyed. Johnny Blaze has to like brush himself off and get back up. In a different, more conventional kind of action movie, the focus of that scene is going to be on Johnny Blaze. You're going to sort of see his reaction. You're going to see how he feels. There's some aspect that wants us to root for him to get up. In this movie, the focus is on the car, and it's on like the destructive <laughs> acts that happens to the car, right? And I think that it, it comes where it comes from. If you want to talk about like the nuts and bolts, how I would guess that this gets constructed like in a practical sense, even though as a reader I can't really know. But if I were to guess how we actually put this together, it's like you know. I was. I made music videos. I want to show the most awesome thing I can show. Everything that I want to show, I want to make as cool, as stylish, as awesome as possible, and I'm following that impulse. So the car, that's the awesome
awesome part, the car shattering. Think of it sort of like a, a Transformers movie way of looking at characters, except instead of showing a whole bunch of nonsense that doesn't make sense, you show like an awesome object. Right, like instead of Optimus Prime chucking down Fifth Avenue or whatever, and Sheila Booth is like an afterthought, and, and Optimus Prime is this huge mess of, of parts, um, Sheila Booth, like, with the same sense of urgency, like, runs through a puddle, and the puddle is just, like, awesome, and totally distracts from the fact that Sheila Booth is in the scene. Like, like I think there's a lot of scenes in this movie that are like that, where the characters and the actors are kind of peripheral to what's going on, and I think that reinforces this whole idea of it being a movie about spirits, right, and, and sort of, like, uh, that kind of discursive idea of, of, of symbolism. Oh, gosh. I mean, there's so many different ways to talk about it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely think that, if you're, that the characters are, what do you call it, aspects of fate. That's definitely one way of looking at this, that there are fates that are happening, that there's not a ton of agency, um, and that they are part of the show. Uh, but that you are meant to interact with the show, not so much with the characters who are interacting with the show. The show is supposed to have an effect on you. The Shattering Car, you as a, they, the, you as a viewer have a relationship to the Shattering Car, and that relationship informs what the scene means to you, you know, because I don't think it's going to have an independent meaning, right? Like, other than what you yeah. are able to glean from it. And then, like, Nicolas Cage's presence in that scene has a certain function regarding how you look at it, but, like, he is not the lens through which you see everything that happens. Yeah, um, like, the, the, way you, the way you describe it, and, I mean, this is, this is sort of common among action movies, so that there's no reason we need to single out Ghost Rider colon Spirit of Vengeance uh, for this, but it, it seems like most of the conflicts here are procedural rather than dramatic, in that you know, the the Antichrist is about to assume his mantle of power and, you know, we want to stop that or else the world is screwed. It doesn't sound like there's a lot of drama leading up to that choice. Like, it's not like so do I understand right that, you know, Idris Elba as the French priest, you know, recruits Johnny Blaze and says, listen, here's this Antichrist. We got to stop him from getting, you know, powered up. Right. Yeah, like, exactly. That, that the movie starts. OK, so I imagine based on that, there's not like a lot of there's not a lot of soul searching. Like it's not like Idris Elba has to sit down and say, Oh, do I want to, you know, stick my neck out and stop and recruit Johnny blaze? Or do I want to, you know, sort of keep my nose to the ground and sort of live my own parochial life and, you know, adapt as best I can under the new world order. Like that, that's not a choice he has to wrestle with. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. That's one of the things I love about the movie is that it doesn't have the whole, like, but I don't want to be the ghost. Rider. <laughs> like, like, you know, like, like he does want to, like one of the things that happens in the movie is he manages to dispel his curse, but he like, doesn't, it's not a matter of like, Oh, I don't want to be Superman anymore. Like it sucks <laughs> to be the ghost Rider. You're crazy. You know, like, so like, it makes sense that he wants to stop. Uh, but it's, it's not, it's, that is not the drama. The drama is not like, I don't want to be the ghost Rider again. Okay. I'm going to become the ghost Rider again. Like, like that is, that is, you could Write that story using the events that happen, but that's not what happens really. It's right. Much, it's, I mean, yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's a very that's a very you know cliched counterexample, and, and obviously, as you make the point of it's it's kind of overused and it's a little lame if done poorly because it's a yeah. lot of you know monologuing or self narration or just very sort of pathos, I guess. That's not very heroic and easy to root for, but yeah. it is possible to still to still have dramatic occurrences like you know the two two people want something and and you know that they're emotionally either granting or withholding from each other and and from their drama can emerge and you know yeah. not not purely uh procedurally outlined and and i guess the difference is that you know in a in a story of high drama the 
the impact is all emotional and visceral and personal. Whereas in a story of like procedural aspects where it's like, you know, is Ghost Rider going to catch up with this convoy or are they going to get away? Is Ghost Rider going to, you know, spit flaming chain bullet things at the bad guys or are they going to smash him into the ground, you know, et cetera. Then the, well, then, the, then the impact is going to be either on the characters, whether survivor or perish, or on the environment around them. Like in, right, in, right, right. in a real tense, dramatically charged scene, you know, it's not like the paint is peeled off the walls. Right, right, right. I mean, I think that there are there are aspects of it that are dramatic, uh, and there are ways in which what the character wants are frustrated, um, but they aren't necessarily mediated by the emotions of the characters uh, as much as, as as by the relationships of the symbols that are in the scenes. I mean, I guess like the bad guys can get away. Um, and it can feel like a dramatic moment because you've been watching the the fight in a in a symbolic way rather than watching the way that the characters feel about the fight. I guess is a way of putting it. But yeah, but like it's not it's it, the drama. There is drama in the story, but it's not the drama is not adjudicating what happens. Yeah, but but um, for instance, like if if the bad guys get away, do they get away because the hero you know chose to save an innocent bystander, or do they get away because the hero just failed to catch up to them? Like, is, yeah, is, it a, think, is it a dramatic yeah. failure or a procedural failure? It's usually a procedural failure in that sense, yes. And I guess what I, I, when seeing it, I try to read into these procedural failures a symbolism, right? Um, so that it's not just about um, events proceeding in an entertaining fashion. Well, you're right. That, that, I mean, and, yeah. that's, and that's what you're saying. Hi, hi everybody. Yeah. It's, I'm oh, still hey, man. here. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, uh, and I think that what you're saying is that, that everything is of a piece in terms of the, the, the visual or kind of mechanical aspects of the movie being foregrounded in that way. Um, uh, it's alle- of a piece with it being on some level an allegory. Alle- I mean, allegory being what, like the, the Greek word meaning like another place. You know what I mean? So that the 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 drama or the the central conflict of the movie does not happen on the level of uh, of the characters. Or even you're saying on the level of the plot, but kind of happens on this this other you know uh, slightly higher level of abstraction uh, where where ideas are being right are being uh, yeah 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 yeah. yeah hashed out. In that case, I think, yeah, I think that's definitely, that's definitely the case. And that fits what John is talking about. It fits what you're talking about. Um, yeah. And I mean, like there's this, the scene, gosh, the scene where Nicholas Cage actually dispels his ghost rider curse is this like montage of like a spinning skull and it's all white and like black and, and it's, it's very suggestive and, and, and not really very referential to, or, or correspondent to any sort of event that's actually happening. You know what I mean? Like there, but there are ideas that are being communicated in it. It's stuff like that. Like important dramatic effects are relayed through like symbolic suggested ideological means. Uh, I suppose would be one one thing that I would So say. talk to me a little more, talk to me a little more about Ghost Rider. Can, can he, can he literally not, die like what what threatens him what way uh, well it, it's it's a little bit ambiguous in the movie um there is a degree to which he appears to suffer some sort of physical damage early on but it is after like dealing with an insane amount of punishment without even flinching um and uh and i would say that like ghost rider's main limitation is what he's gonna do right like like um but yeah, no, he seems well nigh indestructible. Um, he he sort of triumphs over the, the spirit of decay. He does kill the devil at the end of the st- 
story. Um, he does. Uh, he sends the <laughs> he destroys the devil's corporeal body and like literally drills a hole into hell and like slams the devil down into it. Where we and the last shot of the movie is of like the devil's body being consumed by the fires of hell as you rush in 3D into like the pit of Gehenna, right? Like it's like and the Ghost Rider has made this happen. So Ghost Rider's powers are vaguely defined and nigh absolute. Uh, they seem to somewhat correspond with Nicolas Cage's will to, to enact them. Like, there is a fight where he fights the Decay guy, where the question is, the allegorical question is, which is superior? The sort of, like, you know, decay and entropy and passage of time, or, like, the abstract notion of justice and or vengeance, right? Like, is the, the idea of justice and or vengeance capable of triumphing, like, over eternity? Right? Is that something that can happen in ideas? So there's this ch- scene where, like, Ghost Rider's flame seems to start to sputter out. Um, and the decay spirit says to him, I was never afraid of you. And when he says that, Ghost Rider's head, like, bursts into flame again. Right? And, and, he, and, he, just, and he just kills him. He just sucks out his soul and devours it. And, and it's like... Um, that it's sort of like the thing that killed him was that he was wrong about what was fun- happening in the relationship between the two ideas. He like said the thing that was incorrect, right? And that's what turned the tide. It was not that Ghost Rider had an uppercut that was ready to kill him or like a special move. It just sort of like happened because of what was being said. Um, and and I guess what's being suggested allegorically is that like even eternity fears these abstract notions of justice and vengeance, um, especially because Ghost Rider has a, is a skull that's on fire, so he's already dead, right? Like he's not somebody who's like afraid of dying. Um, does that give you a sense of sort of like the kind of power that he's wielding in this movie? He does take like you know military grade bombs directly to his face, like on many many military grade bombs, not a real thing, but like we're talking like thousand pound bombs, like directly to his face. He gets hit by like a fire and forget like javelin missile, like like in the like from like. 20 feet away and like it just shrugs it off uh and there's just no sense of scope that is consistent about like well this could hurt him versus this doesn't hurt him uh and at one point like but nicholas cage at one point wakes up in a hospital with shrapnel wounds you're not sure where he got them um these things might be very frustrating to somebody who demands a certain amount of material cause and effect from his fight scenes whereas these are not really the way that they work um yeah, so I, I guess the the question is then if if there's nothing that's that's physically capable of of stopping Ghost Rider, I would presume that the only thing that's capable of stopping him is you know limitations in as you say his will in yeah. his like if if Nicola if if sorry I keep saying Nicholas Cage but he's yeah. he's not, he doesn't have a flaming skull. This is a, this is a documentary about Nicholas Cage's life. This is actually like yeah. from first person events are filmed in real time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Nicholas Nicholas Cage has clearly proven that if he wants to make a movie, nothing will stop him from doing it. So his yeah. his will in this case is is a limitless, you know, and and flaming will to power that emanates from the seat of his ego or his skull, if you will. So it could be said that Nicholas Cage himself, in a way, has a flaming skull that lets him overcome anything. But uh, in a way. I mean, I think that, I think that honestly, I think metacasting is one of the major interpretive tools you can use to understand this movie. You know, like, why is Nicolas Cage in it? It's like one of the big questions. Um, but, but yeah, but, but to touch specifically on on Johnny Blaze, Ghost Rider, colon, Spirit of Vengeance. But I, I guess I, I guess my question or my my difficulty understanding is, you know, physically he can't be stopped. 
So yeah. the only thing that can the only thing that determines whether or not he overcomes an obstacle is his will, which I guess is is visually signified by the flamingness of his skull. Yes. Like when his will, when his will is weak, his skull flames less, and when his will yep. is strong, his skull flames more, and it, it emanates out from him. And in the end, when you know he's overcoming the devil, flames completely consume you know the devil, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. There's so definitely like a if, where he's like approaching the kid, and like uh, his flames start to go out as he gets closer and closer to the kid. And there's this suggestion that like he's just incapable of like reaching the kid, and then he sort of collapses. And the kid has some sort of power to neutralize him. This never comes up in the movie again. <laughs> it just happens in that one scene. But you're you're absolutely correct. Anyway, I continue. Okay, so like if so if if the only thing that determines whether he triumphs over an obstacle or not is his uh, is, is his is his willpower, then. I, I, my presumption would be that, you know, they, they throw lots of obstacles in the path of his will, like things to blunt his will, like, you know, innocent bystanders to save or doubts from his past to torment him or things like that. But as you describe it, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of that in the movie either. So it, it doesn't even seem like a, a dramatic movie so much as a, a straight line set of points like, you know, Ghost Rider has to go to a place and blow stuff up. He goes to that place and blows stuff up. Then he go. Then he has to go to another place and blow stuff up. So he goes to that place and blows that stuff up. Like, is that is that an adequate summary of of the through line of the film? Well, he's his. I would I would make the distinction between will and willpower. Um, it is not that he. Ha- it's not whether or not he has the capacity to do it. It's whether he has the volition. Like, it's whether he actually wants to do it. Um, and, and, uh, I think in he, part of it is he argues with himself a lot. Uh, and, and so there's, there's a, there's a really interesting scene, which is sort of flipped where he's, this is the same scene that comes after the scene where the guy talks about his balls, where he's trying to interrogate this Russian gangster to find out where the kid is. And because the Russian gangster has done so many bad things in his life, the spirit of good ghost rider spirit of vengeance is trying to come out of Nicolas Cage's body and devour the guy's soul. And Nicolas Cage is trying to get the information he wants out of the guy before the rider bursts out of his body and devours the guy's soul and the information is lost. Uh, and that's the drama of the scene. And you see, like, Nicolas Cage's eyes start bugging out and, like, parts of his head start becoming skull-like. And then when he finally gets the information he wants, it cuts to this, like, like sort of uh, non-representational scene of him doing a primal scream while he, like, shoots at high speeds with his head contorting uh, through, like, a sort of fantasy scape. Um, so it, it's like... A, <laughs> So there's definitely (laughs) so there's a lot of stuff like that where like he's struggling with whether he actually knows what he's doing, whether there's some sort of will that's superior to his that sort of blunts his volition to do the thing that he wants to do, whether he gets too discouraged, whether the spirit of the rider is like satisfied of what's going on, right? Whether it's like he's killed enough people. There is one scene where he like devours a guy's soul and he's like he's done, you know, and it's like okay, I'm done, I'm I'm okay for now, and I stop. so yeah, there's definitely like aspects of like does he does he want to do it? Like what is the nature of wanting things? How volitional is will versus willpower being sort of a capacity? Okay, um, so this all right, so this touches on the the Schopenhauer aspect that you yeah. that you brought up. Well, in the, I'm using this lens more and more because it seems to work. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the Schopenhauer quote, which I I think I'm I'm butchering here. I may be confusing it with with Lawrence of Arabia, but you know that a man do what he wills, but he can't will what he wills. Right, right, right. Which is the main, number one rule of weight loss. Um, by the way. <laughs> it's like you're going to want the cookies. 
<laughs> but you you can will you can but he does what he wills. You can't will what he wills. But you can not have the cookies around. And that yeah, way you, you, won't, you, you yeah. can you can choose not to you can choose not to have a cookie, but you can't choose not to want a cookie because you yes. know it's it's chocolate and salt and and sugar. It's you know it's touching all our biological primal urges in the same sense that you know vengeance is a primal urge for this spirit of possessing johnny blaze ghost rider colon spirit of vengeance so <laughs> and, that, uh, and that that the distinction that you're drawing between wanting uh between wanting and choosing is the same distinction that pete was drawing between will and willpower or between you know volition and uh, uh volition slash agency and will right yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah 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 that is uh that's excellent. We we have uh now discussed for about 1 hour Ghost Rider <laughs> Spirit of Vengeance. Um I and I I I note that uh the colon is is the you know diacritical mark not the uh not the human organ because the colon spirit of vengeance is what you have after too much spicy food. Zing. Kapow. <laughs> Your skull, was, your skull was flaming bright red on that one, wasn't it, Matt? I, I figure, I figure, I should be the host who only talks in puns. So we'll uh, uh, we'll come back at you next week. Uh, if you want to join the conversation about uh, Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance, please do. Uh, we're going to actually open a new forum on the Overthinking It forums, dedicated entirely to the philosophical question of uh, Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance, and uh, all the major uh, d- philosophical schools will be sub forums within that forum. Uh, just kidding. We're not going to do that at all. But what do you mean? I will totally do that. <laughs> Matt do, doesn't do it. I'll do it myself. But we do have to give Pete's voice a rest. So if you all want right. to join the conversation, you can email us at podcast at overthinking.com. Call 203. Call or text, I should say. Uh, 203-285-6401. Or leave a comment on the show notes uh, where great discussions happen. Um, we will uh, we will you know keep the flaming skull burning until next week. Uh, but uh, between now and and then you can find us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't deserve. For February 20th, two... So I have, a, I have a Schopenhauer quote that I think is appropriate, I'd like to read. Uh, <clears throat> it's, it's from a letter of his to, uh, to Goethe, in which he writes, It is the courage to make a flaming skull of it in the face of every question that makes the philosopher. He must be like Johnny Blaze's ghost rider, who, seeking enlightenment concerning his terrible fate, pursues his indefatigable inquiry even though he divines that appalling horror awaits him in the answer. But most of us carry with us the ghost rider in our hearts, who begs Johnny Blaze, for God's sake not to inquire further. And I'll quote the movie Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance and say, uh, what if you have to pee when you're on fire? Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> that's in the movie. It's in the movie. There's a, there's a fire peeing scene that's repeated twice. <laughs> Wait, it's, rep- it's repeated twice for a total of, of three? Or it's, no, no, no. It's re- sorry, it's repeated once for a total of twi- two times. Oh, that, 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 that would be, uh, it should observe the rule of three, or as I like to call it, the rule of pee. <laughs> <laughs>